Welcome to the Abundant Edge Podcast. Here we dive deep into the diverse worlds of regenerative living, permaculture, and natural building as we aspire to help you reach your highest potential for yourself, for your community, and for this beautiful planet that we share. As always, I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher, and I'm thrilled to guide you through this week's episode. So let's jump right in. Sarah from New Society Publishers. At New Society, we are committed to ensuring that the health and diversity of the environment is conserved for the benefit of future generations. Find out more about how we put people and planet first at newsociety.com or on any of your favorite social media channels. Now in all the research that I've been doing for this ongoing series on reforestation agroforestry, I've struggled to find any reports or serious articles that outline the potential steps to transition the world's agricultural model on a large scale from one that's based on annual crops and the intensive cultivation that they require to one based on perennial crops. The advantages are obvious, from a decrease in soil disturbance and fertilization due to the natural cycles that keep roots in the ground and hold soils in place against erosion, to increases in biodiversity and animal habitat. The list goes on and on, and though many people have advocated for this switch, I couldn't find any longer-term strategy until I came across an article called Investing in Perennial Crops to Sustainably Feed the World, which was co-authored by my guest today, Peter Kahn. Peter is a tenured professor of biochemistry at Rutgers University who became interested in the potential of perennial crops from speaking with a colleague of his who was studying this topic. Now we cover a lot of ground in a short time in this interview. Peter starts by explaining how every previous society throughout history that has relied on annual grain production as their primary food source has collapsed, and how up until now we've avoided this fate by exploiting the great carbon stores of the earth in the form of petroleum in order to compensate for the damage we've been doing to our ecology. We move from there to the already proven methods of perennial cultivation that could be expanded to start to replace the annual grains that we now rely on. Peter also breaks down some of the steps proposed in the article on how international organizations and alliances would need to be fostered to promote new cultivation methods and also to develop perennial grain replacements for the short-term transition. We also get into the tough questions of breaking down the exploitative economic and political structures that have given us the extractive industrial models that rule the agricultural landscape and some of the existential issues that we would need to grapple with before real change in our society could be accomplished. It was really encouraging for me to see that serious academics are starting to explore the strategies towards a global transition towards regenerative agriculture and how the revival of forest ecosystems is included in that strategy. There's obviously a long road ahead, but the increasing awareness of the urgency of this transition is a good sign that respect and value for the earth that we all depend on is increasing. And I've included a link to the article that we discuss in the show notes for this episode, so you can take a look for yourself and decide if the plan outlined by these professors seems feasible or if there are pieces missing. If you have any alternative ideas or ways to expand on the plan in the article, I would love to hear your ideas. You can write to me directly at info at or leave comments for this episode on the website. So with that out of the way, I'll hand things over now to Peter. Hey, Peter, thank you so much for taking the time to be with me here today. How are you doing? I'm doing all right. How are you? I'm doing well. We're both uh, kind of making the transition towards into winter now. 
but it seems like it's going to be a lot colder for you in New Jersey than it is for me here in Spain. Mm, I imagine. Where are you in Spain? Uh, I'm about 30 minutes north from Barcelona, so not far from the Med. We're in the Mediterranean climate. It's quite nice. Right. Well, hey, look, uh, I really enjoyed the article that you and your team put together focusing on the potential of perennial crops to, to sustainably feed the world. And that's what we're going to kind of focus on today. But before we discuss the article, could you tell our listeners a little bit about your personal background and how you and your team came to focus on perennial agriculture production? Well, I'm a biochemist by trade. My title is Professor of Biochemistry at Rutgers University. Uh, in New Brunswick, New Jersey. Uh, the teaching and research I do directly in biochemistry has very little to do with agriculture, tree crops, or anything of the sort, except in that when you study biochemistry, you're studying systems. A cell is an integrated system of many parts, an organism likewise. And when you think about an ecological system, the systematics of it are no different from those of a cell in that the parts are closely interrelated. So I got interested in agriculture because the fellow who had the office above me was an agriculturalist who worked on turf grasses, which are perennials. And as he was approaching retirement, he got interested in tree crops and he knew about crops all over the world. He was really well versed. We used to go to lunch together and he gradually got me more and more interested and then I started working on it. So now, like I mentioned earlier, um, I contacted to you because of this incredible article called Investing in Perennial Crops to Sustainably Feed the World. And with your understanding of yes. systems related to biochemistry, let's talk a little bit about the primary disadvantages to give us context here of sort of the mass annual crop production around the world and how perennial agriculture could step in and address some of these? Well, every human civilization that has depended upon annual grains um, for their, the root of their sustenance has collapsed. There have been no exceptions. And ours is headed in the same direction. Even if we had no problems with climate change, if it didn't exist as a problem, we would still be heading for collapse. And the reason is that annual monocrop agriculture gradually erodes the land's capacity to provide further nutrition. And the way it's done in this country with huge tracts of things like corn and soybeans and what have you, uh, with huge chemical inputs and all sorts of other procedures that erode the soil's capacity to nurture us, um, eventually the system will fall apart. We have a dead zone at the mouth of the Mississippi River, and there are dead zones all over the world for similar reasons in which agricultural waste and fertilizer and what have you have leached down uh, the rivers um, and, <clears throat> excuse me, produced increasing inability of the soil to support us unless it receives chemical inputs. And the chemical inputs come primarily from petroleum. Now, so given this fact that, that you mentioned, all previous civilizations that have relied on annual crop production in order to sustain themselves have collapsed, how has this cycle been able to continually perpetuate itself to the point that we have today, which is basically uh, is nearly wiped out the biodiversity throughout our planet? Well, it's proceeded that way because it has been able to provide food 
um, and in settled ways for settled communities since the agricultural revolution. As more, uh, and what has enabled it to keep going is humans have taken over more and more of the planet using more and more land to grow food. And if you take over virgin land and start growing food, you can do so for quite some time before it falls apart. Now, so as we start to reach the limits of where this type of food production can continue to expand to, and at the same time, the resources, the petroleum products that have sort of artificially propped up this system up until this point are starting to become not only more expensive, but our sources of extracting them are starting to collapse. Let's talk about how perennials can start to I guess, walk back some of the destructive aspects of annual production and what potential that they have to create the food needed to sustain this population? Well, there are a whole range of things uh, are in progress in various parts of the world. You've undoubtedly heard about permaculture, um, where pioneering work has been occurring anywhere from Australia through this country into Europe. Um, In um, Salina, Kansas, there's a place called the Land Institute, which is trying to develop perennial grains that can be planted once and harvested thereafter year after year after year. But they want to do this in mixed culture um, in which they have multiple species growing, mimicking the ecology of the, um, of the American prairie. That was an ecological arrangement that was stable for thousands of years. And if that could be mimicked in a way that produced enough grain to feed people, um, that would be one part of a perennial plant solution. They are at the point now where they have a perennial uh, grain called Kernza, K-E-R-N-Z-A, which actually makes a very good flour, um, and they're in the process of commercializing it. Where they're going next with that is to add additional species uh, so that they have the mixed Um, species agricultural crop that they are aiming for. It's a very good operation. So that's one instance. Another describes the fact that, well, some of its prongs describe the fact that smaller farms produce more calories per acre than um, large farms do. Large farms produce more calories per man hour worked That's because of all the automation that goes into them. Automation, which compacts the soil, which is destructive of the soil fertility and so forth. But small farms with a wide variety of crops and what has come to be called um, restoration agriculture um, offers the possibility that farmers can number one, make a living and number two, produce enough to feed a lot of people. The more of that that is encouraged, the better. To do it, there will be political problems that will have to be overcome. But that's a somewhat different subject. Certainly. Now, you mentioned Kernza, this new perennial grain that is being uh, promoted as an alternative to annual grain production. Can you tell me a little bit about how this new grain has been developed and why there has been a focus on developing new options when there are already widely cultivated perennial grains, the the one that comes to mind personally is uh, sorghum. Is there an advantage to these improved grains um, and the process that it takes to getting them there? Or should there perhaps be more of a priority put on 
existing perennial grains and how those can be promoted for their particular advantages or expanded into other climates? I believe sorghum is an annual, isn't it? I believe sorghum is a perennial. I may have I that wrong. It's remember, been, anyway. it's been, convo uh, sorry, go ahead. Fine. The, the, the Kernza is um, derived from something called an intermediate wheat grass. The idea is to have something that produces at a high level. Um, the, the land institute people would certainly have no objection to adding in sorghum or using sorghum or any of the ones that now exist. What has to happen is basically two things. They have to be made able to grow with minimal input from the outside, minimal fertilizer, minimal anything else. Um, and secondly, they have to have increased yields sufficient to be able to feed people. And thirdly, it has to be possible to avoid large monocrop tracts planted to the same crop because a huge monocrop acreage is a disaster waiting to happen. You're looking for plant diseases to take over, uh, insect uh, uh, infestations to take over, and so forth. Now, does this implicate the idea that only improved perennials will be suitable to, to take on the task of feeding the world's population the way the annuals have done up until now? There are, are undoubtedly perennials that could be used as they are. What are some of the ones that come to mind that are currently widely cultivated around the world? And do you, have you uh, identified some of the reasons why they haven't taken more of a prominent place in the world's diet? Partly the advertising that goes with the grains that we now use, right, um, kind of swamp anything else. If you don't have a market for your grain, right, you're not going to grow it if you're a farmer, unless you want to go broke. As to which other perennials are out there that could be used, I don't really know. Um, sorghum is a case in point. There are undoubtedly others. Um, I don't really have a good feel for that right now. So let's talk about where perennial farming is at the moment and what would need to change for it to be able to step up and take over more of the market share for annual production. There are a fair number of restoration agriculture people and permaculture people around the world. In order for them to take over a market share, the dominance of market by what we now call agribusiness is going to have to be reduced or eliminated. When firms like Conagra, Monsanto, and so forth control a huge fraction of what agriculture happens, uh, we're in trouble. They get subsidies of one kind or another, uh, direct or indirect. The fossil fuels that they use are subsidized by things like the oil depletion allowance. The machinery makers are, in a sense, taking part in this. Not in a sense, they really are. Um, and they're using fossil fuels to make the machines, and so it goes. Other resources are going there as well. If we want to encourage restoration agriculture, and we know how to do restoration agriculture, there are farmers who are doing it successfully. If we want to encourage it, the, the playing field has to be made at least level. It is not level now. Agriculture, as we now know it, is heavily subsidized. And those subsidies are indirect. Whoever heard about cutting back on the oil depletion allowance or the depreciation that mineral companies get for mining? Uh, that's part of the agricultural problem. 
And until people understand that, we're not going to get anywhere. That's one of my favorite parts about the article that you and your colleagues put together and how it outlines some of the, the systems in place that are preventing any kind of progress to be made on the environmental destruction that annual production is causing. I know that you talked about there needing to be some major political changes, which, though there are recommendations in this article, are very difficult to predict or, or instigate for. So let's talk about some of the, the steps that can be taken in order to prioritize perennial production moving forward. One of the arguments that the Agriculture Department makes and that some of our polit political people make is that they want to encourage family farms. Right? And there are family farms out there, many of which do monocrop agriculture. If one could induce the Department of Agriculture to make low interest loans or subsidies available for people who want to set up restoration agriculture farms, uh, that would be very good. Another thing that could be done is colleges of agriculture, um, of which there's one at least in every state, and often more than one, could put restoration agriculture, perennial cropping, as part of the curriculum. Those are just a couple of things that come to mind as we're talking here. And what do you think are some of the other barriers to get these steps from happening? Do you think it's simply a matter of money being put in to perpetuate sort of the industrial agriculture system? Or are there other roadblocks that are perhaps more likely to be overcome as costs start to rise for the inputs in, in industrial agriculture? Oh, yes. And in fact, there's a good deal of this in progress right now. Um, local farmers markets are terrific um, in that you end up establishing a relationship between the consumer and the farm, right? We have a couple of them around me here in New Brunswick, uh, and we go to them frequently. Even though the prices of some of the things at the farmers markets are a little higher than you pay in the supermarket, you know what you're getting. And you know that there are no chemicals used uh, by way of insecticides or pesticides on them. You know also that you're buying direct from a farmer <clears throat> or from a farm cooperative rather than having it pass through the hands of a large middleman. The, um, the farmer markets are really very good and the more they are um, patronized, the more they'll grow. And the more they grow, the more farmers will have an incentive uh, to change the way they, they, they farm. So we've talked a little bit about shifting over major grain production to perennial uh, grasses or grains. Do you see there to be a potential for tree and perhaps shrub production that have much more uh, benefits for the ecology, especially as we need to repair damaged lands due to previous or current agricultural practices? They offer an awful lot. Um, for one thing, trees, uh, like all perennials, have deeper roots so they can access a wider range of nutrients in the soil. They can also access water more readily and use it more effectively. They provide food in many, many ways. There are nut trees of all kinds. Uh, pecans are an excellent uh, use. Uh, there are many trees that provide um, long beans, such as mesquite, um, <clears throat> which have been used by the Native Americans, uh, the original Americans, um, for thousands of years all of which are, are useful. Moreover, trees planted in multi-crop with multiple species, not huge expanses of the same tree, um, 
These can provide continuing production year after year with little or no input, um, perhaps a bit of trimming. They provide shade. They allow other crops to be grown in the shade underneath the trees. They allow vines to be grown with the trees used as trellises. Uh, the number of possible combinations is almost infinite. There's an old book by J. Russell Smith um, <clears throat> on tree crops, a perennial agriculture, in which he describes the island of Corsica. This was back in the 1920s, in which there are chestnut forests in the mountains that have been there for hundreds and hundreds of years. Villages dotted along the mountains that thrive on these chestnut forests as their primary source of production. Um, there's no reason not to do similar things depending upon the local ecology elsewhere. Perhaps not with chestnuts, but with other trees. Why not? The more of that, the better. So up until now, we've talked a lot about grain and vegetable production. And a lot of what is vilified in modern agriculture is the importance put on the production of animal protein, especially beef and larger cattle. Is, do you see much of a, a potential for the integration of perennial crops and uh, livestock production as well? Absolutely. Um, uh, if you're going to run uh, permaculture farms or, or restoration agriculture farms, livestock need to be part of it. The livestock provide fertilizer um, uh, when they're being pastured. And if they're pastured carefully, uh, they can encourage the growth of grasses and other useful uh, crop, useful plants in the areas that they are moved from, from one period of time to another. A problem that current animal agriculture has is huge tracts of things like corn uh, are used to feed the animals and it's destructive of the land and it produces animal protein that's not the best of quality but certainly usable. If you include animals as a necessary part of the ecosystem of a restoration farm, you can produce a fair amount of meat that way. You will not produce as much of any given crop, animal or otherwise, on a restoration farm as you might with the same acreage in, um, in a monocrop agriculture. But you'll produce enough that you can feed lots of people. And in doing so, you will not only maintain the land, you can enrich the land as you do so. I like that. That's very well explained. Um, you know, it, there's, there's even justification for using horses as part of the um, landscape in cultivating the land. If you use horses, you can cultivate in places that tractors can't go. Can you use them everywhere for everything? No, certainly not. Um, but there are many places where you could use them. It seems like in every way that perennial crops are implemented, they have the, the great advantage of all of the extra ecosystem services, as you mentioned. And one of the things that I like that was focused on in, in the article is the potential for these systems to be implemented where current uh, annual production is simply not feasible, such as in marginal lands or on places with steep slopes and places that are not considered arable land could still support uh, a wide variety of tree species and integrated polycultures, such as you mentioned before. Absolutely. You could start there, all right, in land that isn't being used, 
um, um, and uh, gradually spread out from there. Can you give me perhaps some examples of successful implementation of perennial agriculture that people could follow or look into? Well, there's a fellow, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> there's a fellow by the name of Mark Shepard, right, who has published a book on restoration agriculture. Um, he lives out in the West and he has had a restoration agriculture farm where he makes a very good living uh, for over 20 years. Um, I would recommend his book um, right away. Yeah, Mark Shepard is one of my favorite resources to go to, not only for his book, his farm is well profiled in a great documentary called Inhabit. And in fact, I've actually done a, an interview with him on this podcast at the beginning of the previous season. He's one of my favorite resources to point to people to. Right. There's another writer by the name of Wendell Berry in Kentucky who has written anything from novels to poetry to uh, major essays on agriculture and who is, in addition to a, a, a well-known writer, um, is a farmer. His classic book, The Unsettling of America, is perhaps one of the best that's been written as an argument in favor of getting away from annual monocrop agriculture. Moreover, he ties it very, very well to the political structure that encourages things as they are, in which the land is drained of resources, including drained of people, um, and you end up with rural destruction of the sort that we're now well familiar with. It even ties in with the racial problem in this country. And his other book, um, The Hidden Wound, describes the agricultural roots of our racial problems. So the connections are there, they're everywhere. And I think one of the problems that we all face is getting people to be aware of that. I'm really glad that you mentioned the way that some of those other social ills tie in to this history of destructive processes in agriculture that our society has been reliant on for hundreds if not thousands of years. In your article, you and your team take a great opportunity to outline some of the ways that perennial agriculture can be implemented on a global scale. Could you walk me through some of the developments for this potential improvement on the Green Revolution as the article outlines? The Green Revolution has been heavily dependent upon external inputs to make these short um, stalk crops grow well. So there has been the need for fertilizer, um, and the fertilizers are what are necessary to make them grow well. They do well when you supply the fertilizer. They've also ended up needing large amounts of insecticides and pesticides of various sorts, <clears throat> excuse me, which again, enable these crops to grow well um, and provide food. But Lauren Borlaug saw the Green Revolution as a temporary measure. If you go back and look at his writings, he saw that as a way to avoid immediate massive famine. And I'm all for that. I don't like the idea of millions of people dying of starvation. But he saw it as an intermediate step. And the intermediate step is going to have to be moving away from huge external inputs. It's as though the, the, the land is on chemotherapy. And the chemotherapy is what you give to somebody to cure them of a disease or to maintain them in a functioning 
capability in spite of the disease. But there's a limit to how far chemotherapy will take you. And so I think what one has to do is to try and move away from annual crops as well as we can, as quickly as we can, in as many ways as we can. I, I hope this answers your question or at least addresses it. It does. Now, let's talk about some of the kind of systematic approaches within governmental levels, within funding levels, and the types of organizations that are outlined in this, in this article that are prescribed to help to make that transition on a global scale. One of the things we proposed is a series of research stations uh, all around the world, with each of them funded with an endowment um, from which the income would provide the funds to develop and enhance perennial crops, and in addition to work on the sociology and politics and economics of it all. These are sort of um, mimicked on the uh, Vavilov research stations that were proposed by the Russian um, biologist Vavilov many, many years ago. Um, the idea would be these would become centers from which perennial work could spread out. If we had a number of these centers in every agricultural area, you know, half a dozen in the United States, or maybe only a few, a few in Europe, a few in South America, a few in China, and so forth, um, it would enhance the capacity of farmers to use perennials as better research is done to describe which ones would work in what kind of an agricultural environment. The environment of the American Southeast is not going to support the same kind of crops as the Northwest. Likewise, local environments all over the world are going to have to have specialized or semi-specialized crops developed for them or adapted to them um, in order for this to succeed. So setting up these things is not very expensive. Uh, in the article, I put some numbers down uh, as ballpark estimates of what it would cost to do this. I don't remember the exact numbers, but they're not very large on a worldwide basis. I mean, the, the figures themselves can be daunting if you see them from kind of a smaller funding context. Uh, I believe it was somewhere around $3 billion. But like you said, with the funding mechanisms, such as tapping into the World Bank or other multinational organizations, this is a relatively small amount of money and could definitely be used to, to mobilize this on a much larger scale. Now, as someone who sort of speaks and, and represents this idea of permaculture and restoration farming, like you've mentioned a few times now, I think that some of the apprehension about having regenerative and restoration farming taken over by multinational organizations or, um, or governments in general is that it could be leveraged to a similar style of domination of the industries that are currently uh, being, being exercised by the industrial farming mechanisms and the, co and the companies that represent them at the moment. Do you see there being a risk for the type of monoculture and extractive practices to continue, even if the switch is made to perennial uh, plants? Bingo, you hit the nail on the head. In fact, Wendell Berry in his writing um, points to this very, very clearly, that um, as long as you have an economy organized on hierarchical lines in which things are mostly top-down, um, in which power is in the hands of a few people rather than many, distributed power. 
as long as you have a hierarchical organization of your society and your economy, this is a major risk. And so with that continuing to be a risk, maybe just from your personal perspective or opinions, what are some of the sort of difficult decisions or the political aspects that you talked about earlier on that kind of need to be resolved for this to be a step forward and not just a lateral move where certain species replace others, but the same type of hierarchical structure continues to dominate the food industry? It won't work unless people become aware that the hierarchical organization of our whole economy um, and our political affairs um, is the obstacle. Unless people realize that that's the obstacle, we're not going to get anywhere. Everything else is just... <laughs> sort of a different head of the same beast, so to speak. Bingo. So, man, that uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm kind of wondering where to go with that next because we could continue to talk about all of the different advantages for the ecosystem, not only through their services, but the potential for ecological food production that could replace the extractive methods of annual production as they are. But until we start to fix some of the root causes, I'm not. Uh, I'm not sure exactly what to ask you next. What are some of your opinions on on where to move from here, or perhaps what people listening at home can do to affect a change at a local level? If you insist that the manager of your local supermarket buy increasing amounts of locally produced produce, that will help, even though that supermarket may be part of a large chain, by forcing it um, through public pressure to buy locally, you improve the possibilities. And when the supermarkets oppose doing it, um, then people can mobilize and ask, why does the supermarket have that much power? So that's one possibility. Another is you can start taking over your state departments of agriculture and get state subsidies for restoration farming within the various states. It's too hard to take on the federal government directly. Um, <clears throat> it's too well funded by lobbyists or too well lobbied by funded lobbyists, excuse me. Um, but state departments of agriculture are not as well known and they are more susceptible to public pressure. I really like that you mentioned that about uh, sort of the power of consumers to have an influence on their, their food economies. I previously did an interview with John Steinman, the author of Grocery Story, The Promise of Food Co-ops in the Age of Grocery Giants. And that's exactly what he spoke about, uh, especially with the focus on supporting small community supported uh, co-op grocery stores and their ability to kind of move power away from the monopoly that grocery stores have, not only on the way food is packaged and presented, but every level of the agricultural system that has to cater to the demands of how those large, <laughs> fairly monopolized chains buy products. They're literally uh, dictating the way things are produced to, to feed the way that they, they are packaged and sold. But you, you, you have to build up pressure starting from below because it's not going to come from above. The billionaires of the world are not going to rectify this. Um, it's going to have to come from below and grow gradually over time. And the more we can push it, the better. Hmm. Well, there is a place where billionaires could be helpful. And that is if they want to fund the research stations, which would include economics and sociological and political research as well. If a billionaire or two wants to do that, I'm all for it. <laughs> here, here, I agree. Now, 
One of the other things that I really got out of the article was some of the hard numbers that helped to illustrate the potential of this switch. Uh, I really gravitated towards the statistic of the idea that on, on simply one hectare of, of perennial production of walnuts, which frankly is the only way to produce them, uh, at even just current production levels, not even with the improvements that are outlined in other parts of, of the article, that alone could supply up to 10% of a 2,000 calorie daily diet for up to 47,000 people. That's just one example, and this isn't just evidence for the potential to feed a large amount of people, but this being a protein and very healthy, fat-rich product can also help to wean people off of the destructive practices of the meat industry while potentially promoting the integration of cattle and other species and increasing the, the biodiversity in that same amount of land. Do you have any other examples that perhaps weren't outlined in the article that you could point to for that potential? Um, pecans, pecan trees, uh, which don't grow too well where I am, although they might with global warming. Um, <laughs> they offer uh, a great many advantages in that they tend to have a loose open canopy. They produce a wonderful crop. They're beautiful trees. And the understory that can be grown under them because of the open canopy, allow, canopy allows you to put all sorts of other things underneath them. So that's one example. Mesquite, something which grows well out in the West, uh, was providing food for Native Americans for generations before the Europeans ever arrived. And that could be used. Um, the, the list is endless. I've been, uh, we, we also published a review um, uh, some years after the article that you've been discussing, um, which has some of these outlined in it. Um, I should probably get you a copy of that sometime. Yeah, I would love to see it if you could send one over. Uh, I'll do that uh, once we're off the air here. Sure, sure. Uh, other things that, that I've been thinking of doing uh, for various reasons, I, I haven't been writing as much recently, <coughs> excuse me, as I did when I did that article, but I'm getting back to it now. I've been thinking of going back to doing exactly as you described and writing up more specific cases in the sense of a case report. If you read the medical literature, uh, there are journals in which a physician or, or a researcher comes upon an interesting case or two, not enough to make an epidemiological argument, but interesting enough to publish it in order that somebody might pick it up and then make a, a further research project out of it. So coming up with agricultural case reports might be really useful. Mm. Yeah, I've been that. thinking about doing exactly that. As I was doing research for not only this series on perennial and, and reforestation types of agriculture, I struggled to find a whole lot of um, articles advocating specifically for perennial agricultural shifts. I found a lot of material sort of talking about the potential and what could be discovered if we did more research. But really, this was one of the, the only ones that I found that really gave uh, a tangible outline for the steps that could be made to start to implement this on a global scale. And so my question is, being much more involved in academia than I am, do you see this as something of an increasing uh, priority for research within academic circles? Or is this still pretty new and only just now starting to come to the forefront of research? 
academic circles, particularly schools of agriculture, have been somewhat in, uh, involved in this, but not nearly um, as much as one would like. Mostly, schools of agriculture are functioning as branches of the U.S. Department of Agriculture through the uh, land-grant system of county agents. And these, in turn, are largely uh, working along the lines that agribusiness has developed. There are exceptions here and there. Um, there are quite a few exceptions here and there, but it's not nearly enough. Academia has not really jumped into this. And I think one of the reasons is that the overlap between the agricultural problem and the political problems and the economic problems, um, including hierarchical structures of almost everything, including universities, um, makes it hard for people to do that and get the funding to make it happen. Mm. Yeah, much like you mentioned earlier, uh, we're not even at the point where we're on a level playing field uh, with people who are looking to implement this on a larger scale. Right now, all of the subsidies are for everything that would perpetuate the destructive cycle. Do you see much hope for sort of short term, say someone listening to this now is interested in implementing uh, perennial agricultural systems, integrated permaculture based and, and polyculture small farms. Are there any institutional supports or academic resources that could help them take a few steps forward? Or is it really just a matter of swimming against the current? It's swimming against the current, but the, you, know, you, you can take the lead from people like Mark Shepard or Wendell Berry, read up, um, and then start talking to local people where you are. You need to have an intellectual framework in your head, right? An outline in your, in your mind as to how, what you want to do. And you can get lots of details from the work of these, these writers and others who are out there. Uh, another one is Wes Jackson at the Land Institute. Uh, his books are wonderful. Uh, and they provide a kind of a primer um, as to what sorts of things could be done. So if someone wants to get into this, they have some reading to do, some thinking to do, and then start talking to people. Then they can make it happen. Certainly. Now, before I let you go, can you let our listeners know of any other resources that you're aware of, of where they could do more of this reading and investigation, like you just mentioned, in order to better educate themselves on the potential of, of, making a living and helping to advance the implementation of perennial and integrated agricultural systems? Well, I did mention the book by Mark Shepard and a couple by Wendell Berry. And I mentioned some books from the Land Institute uh, by uh, Wes Jackson. Those are really good places to start. Those are about the best ones that I know of. There are undoubtedly things out there that I don't know of because I've only gotten into this as a kind of sideline um, in addition to the biochemistry teaching and research that I do normally, and this is increasingly taking over my life. Hmm. I'm actually here on the website for the Land Institute. I've got, uh, I've got their page on perennial sorghum right now, and I'm going to start reading through this as soon as we get off the call. Um, sure. Um, you know, there is, if you go on to Google and you put in permaculture or restoration agriculture and all kinds of things like that, everything in the world is going to pop up. Certainly. There's a ton of resources out there, many of which I've outlined in the podcast before. And um, for people looking for more information, especially on agroforestry and perennial agriculture, you can look through this series that is ongoing. This is just one of the episodes in the last uh, about six weeks that I've done of interviews focusing on this 
topic. So Peter, it's been absolutely wonderful talking to you. I really appreciate the perspective from the academic world on where this is going. And uh, I really, really got a lot out of that article that you and your team put together, especially on the practical steps, even though they're beyond my personal reach and involve many larger players on an international basis to get this moving. Uh, it gives me a lot of hope to see that people are putting real research and planning into what it would take to make this happen. So I really appreciate you taking the time today. Uh, please let me know if you find anything more in your research. And as you continue to publish articles on this topic, I would love to do a follow up in the future. Um, I'll certainly send you the review that we published a few years ago. Marvelous. All right. Well, thank you so much. And uh, hopefully we'll get a chance to catch up again soon. You take care. I hope so. All right, that wraps things up for this week's episode. If you enjoyed this interview and want to find more like it, as well as articles and other resources, you can find the full library of previous podcasts at AbundantEdge.com. The best part is that you can search by topic rather than wading through more than 100 interviews by typing in any keyword or topic that you're looking for in the search function on the podcast page. I've spoken to experts on everything from growing your own food, building homes from natural materials, to beekeeping, vermicompost, permaculture design philosophy, and so much more. Thank you so much to those of you who've taken the time to reach out via comments and emails. Your contributions help me to make this the conversation that it's intended to be and helps me create more of the content around the topics that you're interested in. If you have any insights, advice, questions, or suggestions, be sure to send them to me at info at and I'll look forward to being in touch. New episodes come out every Friday like clockwork, so I'll catch you on next week's show.